It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 821 for the 3rd of March, 2023. This week, until now, Adobe's Lightroom and Lightroom Classic offered no way to add more than a single mask to an image. That's no longer the case, and the change gives users the ability to make modifications that previously would have required using Photoshop. In short circuits, Netflix has been trying to find a way to limit password sharing and is testing one option in South America. How long will the disk drive in your computer last? There's no way to tell for sure, but the annual disk drive report from cloud backup company Backblaze offers some useful clues. And 20 years ago, only on the website, in 2003, airlines were just beginning to introduce electronic tickets. It wasn't until 2008 that the conversion was nearly complete. Although both Lightroom and Lightroom Classic have offered masks for several years, one of the major differences between those applications and Photoshop has been Photoshop's ability to apply multiple masks on multiple layers. That difference is disappearing. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's not a big deal, just a snapshot I'd taken of Chloe Cat. She's the cat whose voice appears at the end of each podcast. Because the photo had been taken using available light and mixed light at that, outdoor light from the north and west windows along with three interior lights, there were clearly some problems. The cat's hooded eyes were dull and dark, her head should have been a bit lighter and more colorful, and the background was just too distracting. I decided to apply three masks, one to the background, another for the cat's face, and a third for her eyes. This is the kind of job that previously would have required editing in Photoshop. But Lightroom's new masking capabilities eliminate the need to create a huge TIFF file for use in Photoshop and the extra steps required by editing the image in an external program. As is the case with most cats, Chloe is fur-covered, and fur is one of the most challenging objects to select. Adobe's mask refinement tools have improved greatly in recent years, and now artificial intelligence often gets the selection exactly right without any help from the user. There are specific options for selecting a background, selecting the main subject, selecting a sky, or selecting people. I used the background selection, main subject selection, and then the brush tool for the eyes. After selecting the background, I reduced the exposure by about half an f-stop and also dialed down saturation, texture, and clarity. For the face, I increased the exposure by about 0.8 of an f-stop, added a little dehaze, which effectively increases sharpness. I used the mask on the eyes to increase the exposure by a little more than half an f-stop, and I shifted the color temperature slightly toward yellow. 
In addition to being able to create multiple masks, Lightroom has new types of masks. Linear gradient, radial gradient, and brush options still exist. Now there are options to select objects, subject, sky, background, people, and color range, luminance range, and depth range. The masks are used to create non-destructive modifications to images, so I can remove or turn off the masks on the image of the cat to get back to the original picture if I want to, because the modifications are written to a catalog file, not to the image itself. The mask, which can be shown by a color cast over the image, controls which parts of the image will be modified. The overlay is red by default, and you'll see that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, but it can be changed to any other color that the user prefers. By default, masks are numbered when they're created, but it's a good idea to name them, particularly if the image has several masks. I named the masks in the cat picture eyes, face, and background. Clever, huh? That way it's easy for me to locate the appropriate mask if I want to modify it. I could, for example, change the eyes mask to turn the cat's eyes blue or green. When selecting people, Lightroom looks for all of the people who can logically be selected within an image. In a photo with two people in the foreground of a dining room in a restaurant, one relatively prominent person in the background, and others sitting at tables, each of the people in the foreground was selected, as was the single person in the background. Once masks had been applied, I could change exposure, contrast, color, and many other characteristics individually for each of the people. There have been other improvements in the current version of Lightroom Classic. The Healing tool now has Clone and Content-Aware Remove options. The image I've used to illustrate Content-Aware Remove is from a ball game. One boy is running toward first base, the first baseman is watching for the ball, and the pitcher is in the lower left. Normally, I would leave the pitcher in the frame because the composition is better that way, but let's say for whatever reason I want to remove the pitcher. There are two choices, cropping and content-aware remove. Cropping would harm the composition by placing the first baseman too close to the left edge, so content-aware remove is the better choice. After selecting the healing tool and the content-aware remove function, I use the brush to select the pitcher and a little bit of the area surrounding the pitcher. Lightroom did the rest. Careful observers will note one small flaw at the left edge of the image. If this bothers you, removing it would be easy with the Clone tool. Some modifications do still require Photoshop, and that's easy because Lightroom Classic and Photoshop communicate with each other really well. For example, you might want to colorize an old black-and-white photo. Neural filters are relatively new additions to Photoshop, and they are updated regularly. Some of the filters are clearly labeled as beta options, skin smoothing, smart portrait, makeup transfer, style transfer, colorize, super zoom, and JPEG artifact removal are finalized. They're completely ready for prime time. Landscape mixer, harmonization, color transfer, depth blur, and photo restoration are all in beta. Portrait Generator, Water Long Exposure, Shadow Regenerator, and Noise Reduction are on a wait list. That means they're not currently being developed, but they will be if users have sufficient interest. 
The Nero filters are a good illustration of the advantages of regular software updates. Developers work to add new features and improve existing features based on feedback from users. These features are added to the application when they're ready. To illustrate colorization, I started with a black and white picture from a far distant time in Lightroom Classic. Because the Nero filters are in Photoshop, I needed to transfer the photo there. That's accomplished by right-clicking the photo and choosing Edit in Photoshop. Then you'll be offered three options. Edit a copy with Lightroom adjustments, edit a copy, and edit the original image. I almost always use the first option, edit a copy with Lightroom adjustments. The image then opens in Photoshop with any alterations that have been added in Lightroom. This is done by creating a TIFF that reflects all of the Lightroom modifications. In Photoshop, select Filters from the main menu, then Neural Filters. Colorize is near the bottom of the list. The first time the filter is used, and whenever the filter has been updated, it'll be downloaded from Adobe. Selecting Auto Color Change produces surprisingly good results most of the time, but nearly a dozen slight variations exist, and you can choose any of those. Or just try them out and see if they're better than what the default is. Adobe's photography plans are reasonably priced. Creative Cloud individual apps cost $10 a month. The Creative Cloud photography plan is also $10 a month. And the Creative Cloud all apps plan costs $55 a month. The photography plan includes Lightroom, that's one application, Lightroom Classic, that's a second application, Photoshop for desktop, that's number three, Photoshop for iPad, there's number four, Lightroom Mobile, that's number five, and 20 gigabytes of online storage. You can increase the online storage to one terabyte if you need it for an extra $10 a month, but you can also just store your images locally. Some people do resent software as a service, but I always suggest that those people consider photography in pre-digital days. $10 would buy oh, maybe a roll of 36 exposure, 35mm film, processing, and prints. You had no control over the prints unless you had your own darkroom, or you used a professional lab at a much higher price. You couldn't take pictures with the phone in your pocket because you didn't have a phone in your pocket. If you wanted to send family members a photo of the new baby, you couldn't attach a picture to an email because you didn't have email either. Instead, you had to order prints, put them in envelopes, address and stamp the envelopes, and mail the pictures to the relatives. Things were different then, very different. Anybody who was at all interested in photography probably spent a lot more than $10 a month on the hobby just for film and processing. Software as a Service ensures that you always have the latest features, many of which save time. Removing the ball player in my earlier example would have been time-consuming with an old version of Photoshop. Those old versions still work, and they'll continue to work for a long time, but you'll be missing out on tools that can make your photos better and do the work faster and with less effort. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. 
I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, Netflix has been threatening to charge higher fees to those they find are sharing their login credentials outside their immediate family. Now, maybe it's backing off just a bit. Users in Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru are already paying higher fees if their credentials are used frequently from a location other than their primary location. According to Netflix, a primary location is set by a TV that is signed into your account and is connected to your Wi-Fi network. All other devices signed into your account on that Wi-Fi network will be associated with your primary location and will be able to use Netflix. Users don't have to declare a primary location, but if they don't, Netflix will set one for them using what appears to be the primary IP address. During the month I lived in an assisted living facility, Netflix sent a semi-surly email whenever I logged in from there. Clearly, they had identified my primary location. Allowing non-household members to use account credentials in the three South American countries generates an additional fee for each additional location. The fee is less than the cost of a full monthly Netflix subscription. Netflix says its objective is to understand how users in Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru accept the new policies before they introduce it anywhere else. If you have a device that you don't typically use with Netflix, but use while you're on a business trip or a vacation, you could receive a challenge from Netflix. That's because any device that hasn't been used to view a program on Netflix in the past 31 days will be dropped from the list of recognized devices. In January, Netflix co-CEO Greg Peters said the company would roll out the new policies in the United States during the first quarter of 2023, but almost immediately walked that statement back. Currently, the basic plan with ads costs $7 a month and limits its use to a single supported device. Basic without ads is $10 a month and still limited to a single device. The standard plan, $15.50 a month, allows two devices and the $20 a month premium plan offers Ultra HD signals and a limit of four simultaneous devices. The ad-supported plan is available only in the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, Italy, Australia, Japan, Korea, and Brazil. That plan, which was introduced late last year, has been popular, and Netflix has gained nearly 8 million new users in the final quarter of 2022, considerably more than the expected 4.5 million new users. Other than heat, time seems to be the primary threat to disk drives. Cloud backup company Backblaze has more than 235,000 disk drives in operation, and that gives the organization a lot of data. Let's take a look at the Backblaze annual report on hard drive failure rates. 
More than 4,000 disk drives are boot devices, so they were not analyzed in this report. The company started with 231,309 data drives and removed 388 drives that were used either for testing or there were fewer than 60 in use. So the report actually covers 230,921 hard drives from HGST, Seagate, Toshiba, and Western Digital. HGST began as a subsidiary of Hitachi and was acquired by Western Digital in 2012 and then phased out in 2018. Mechanical disk drives were once expected to run for three to five years, and that's a number that seems to have been burned into our collective memories. A former employer ran many hard drives until they were 10 years old, replacing them only when they failed. Reliable backup and RAID technology made that a safe process. RAID is an acronym for Redundant Array of Independent Disks. When one disk in a RAID array fails, it can be replaced in a way that regenerates the missing data. Daily, weekly, and annual backup tapes were maintained for use if the rebuild process ever failed. As far as I know, it never did. Some of the disk drives I use have run for more than seven years. That's clock time. And because they no longer run 24 hours a day, a few of those disks probably are more than 10 years old. Most of the disks are from Western Digital, a few are from Seagate. If you're looking for the most reliable disk drive, the Backblaze report offers a few clues, but little that's definitive. Only one drive model had no failures in 2022, an 8-terabyte Seagate model. The report notes, though, that only 79 of those drives were in service, and the 79 drives ran for a combined total of just 22,839 days because they're used as spares to replace 8-terabyte drives that have failed. The report considers only mechanical hard drives because Backblaze still has a relatively small number of solid-state drives in operation, around 2,200 of them. If you'd like to ponder the numbers for yourself, check out the Backblaze website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Seagate drives had the highest failure rate, and Western Digital had the lowest. But those numbers also come with some qualifications. Starting in Q1 of 2021 and continuing to the end of 2022, the report says, we can see the overall rise in the annualized failure rate over time seems to be driven by Seagate and to a lesser degree Toshiba, although HGST contributes heavily to the Q1 2022 rise. In the case of Seagate, this makes sense, as most of our Seagate drives are significantly older than any of the other manufacturers' drives. And that is directly from the Backblaze report. If you've bought a new computer recently, it may have a solid-state drive, and a Backblaze report on SSDs may interest you. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Backblaze notes the differences between a Dell SSD that has an annualized failure rate of zero and two Seagate models that have an annualized failure rate of 1% this way. And I quote, The Dell drive seems to be the best. It is a server-class drive in an M2 form factor, but it might be out of the price range for many of us as it currently sells from Dell for $468.65. 
The two remaining drives are decidedly consumer-focused and have the traditional SSD form factor. Only one of those Seagate drive models is still available, and it's currently available on Amazon for $45, less than a tenth of the cost of the Dell drive. Mechanical hard drives begin experiencing significant higher failure rates starting in about year 5. Backblaze has 5 years of data for SSDs, and it appears that if a solid-state drive will fail, it will probably do so early. SSDs had a failure rate around 1% starting in year 2, and the rate actually dropped a bit by year 5. There is no way to know when a disk drive will fail, but there are some clues. Most drives now include SMART technology. SMART's an acronym for Self-Monitoring Analysis and Reporting Technology, and it reports various attributes of a disk drive. A utility such as the free Crystal Disk Info displays information about the computer's disk drives. My primary computer has an SSD boot drive, four data drives in a device that connects through a Thunderbolt socket, and a USB drive that's used to maintain copies of working documents. Crystal Disk Info's display varies depending on whether the disk being monitored is an SSD or a mechanical drive. It reports basic information at the top of the screen for each drive, the drive's temperature, and its general condition, good, caution, or bad. Raw data values are shown in the lower half of the display using hexadecimal numbers. Hex numbers are the same as decimal numbers from 0 through 9. After that, 10 through 15 are shown as A through F. For SSDs, the most critical values are the percentage at the top of the screen, the temperature, and the critical warning flag. For mechanical drives, health status and temperature are important, but also check the raw values for read error rate, seek error rate, spin retry count, and uncorrectable sector count. The numbers should all be low, and the uncorrectable sector count should be zero. So, to answer the question I posed at the outset, there is no way to tell when a disk drive will fail. Track the drive's performance, keep the temperature under 60 degrees centigrade, and maintain a reliable backup to avoid data loss. There is a very good way to know what was going on in 2003. Just check out 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Back then, airlines were just beginning the process of eliminating paper tickets. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. Mm -hmm.